0: We've been doing a a sermon series entitled, The Road to Destiny. The Road to Destiny. We began earlier in Luke's gospel, and we've traced uh, Jesus' uh, steps in part as uh, he began to make his way toward Jerusalem and toward his destiny to offer himself for you and me and to win a final victory. And uh, a familiar portion of scripture is here in Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go uh, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, one of the most useful skills a person can have is a keen ability to observe. A keen ability to observe, to have a clear understanding of the significance of people, places, and events in their lives. Today we're going to examine a historical event that uh, many in our day might consider insignificant. But I submit to you that this day, what we call Palm Sunday, celebrating the triumphal entry of Christ, is actually full of significance for you and me, even though it took place 2,000 years ago. And I also submit that we should therefore use our powers of observation to understand what revelations it holds for us. Um, For the past few weeks, we've been focusing, as I said, on that period of Jesus' ministry in which He began to make His way to Jerusalem. We're calling the series The Road to Destiny because it was here in Jerusalem that Jesus would fulfill the mission given to Him by His heavenly Father, suffering and dying for the sins of the world. The title of my message today is Revelation on the Road to Discovery. Revelation on the Road to Discovery. It is so vitally important that we not miss the significance of this event. As we who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ walk with Him, we walk toward our own God-given destiny. So let's look closely at this event. Let's use our powers of observation this morning as we seek to answer the following question. What does Christ's triumphal entry reveal to us? That's the question I want to answer this morning. What does Christ's triumphal entry reveal to us? I want to suggest to you five things it reveals to us today. The first is this. His arrival was a fulfillment of prophecy. His arrival was a fulfillment of prophecy. Some may read these verses and say, so what? Jesus borrowed a donkey and rode it into the city. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, what Jesus did was fulfill a prophecy spoken by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah wrote these words all the way back in 520 BC. At that time Jerusalem had been destroyed by by the Babylonians 66 years earlier. And in Zechariah's day, Jerusalem was still in ruins and the process of rebuilding had just begun. But he speaks of a day when the Messiah would come and Jerusalem would be filled with His glory. He speaks of this day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem toward his destiny. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament. Adrian Rogers, Pastor Adrian Rogers illustrates in one of his sermons uh, that the probability of one man fulfilling just eight, just eight of the prophecies referring to Messiah, the probability of that is 1 in 100 trillion. To further illustrate, he said this, suppose we take 100 trillion, I can't even conceive of what that number means, can you? We take 100 trillion silver dollars and lay them uh, on the face of Texas. Texas is a pretty big state, isn't it? Everything's big in Texas. He said, we lay 100 trillion silver dollars on the state of Texas, they would uh, lay two feet deep and uh, we take one silver dollar and we mark it. And we put it in there somewhere. We mix them all up. And then we blindfold a man and tell him to go and find in that 100 trillion, batch of 100 trillion silver dollars, go at, while blindfolded and find that marked silver dollar. Ridiculous, right? That He would have as much chance of finding that silver dollar as one man would have in fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. Now, it's even greater when you consider Jesus didn't just fulfill eight Old Testament messianic prophecies, he fulfilled more than 300 of them. You say, Pastor Tim, why is this so important? I'll tell you why it's so important. Because it proves that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be. It claimed that he was the promised Messiah sent by Almighty God, and furthermore, and and you know I, I didn't expect that we would have any disagreement here on uh, on that point. But furthermore, it, it it I think says this: if he was who he claimed to be, that means everything he said was true. Everything he claimed was the truth. And every principle he taught, we need to take seriously. When he said to love our neighbors and do good to those who despitefully use us, we need to take that seriously. When he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, in other words, tell the truth even when it's difficult, we need to take that seriously. When he said that we need to live uh, morally pure lives and, and seek God the Father, we need to take that seriously. You see, His arrival was a fulfillment of prophecy uh, that pointed to no one else in all of uh, the history of the world but Him. Jesus was exactly who He claimed to be. God the Son sent from the Father. And so uh, if you're here today, if you're watching online, some may be watching the video of this at a later time, I declare to you that Jesus Christ was who He claimed to be, the Son of the living God, sent from the Father, come uh, to live a sinless life, to die on a sinner's cross, to pay the penalty, uh, uh, the price of sin for you and for me. And we need to take that seriously. We need to come to a reckoning with who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis said, you can accept Him, you can reject Him as a fool, you can call Him a liar, uh, but you can't deny who he claimed to be. And the fulfillment of prophecy certifies Jesus was who he claimed to be. I'm so thankful for that, aren't you, today? So many people in our culture and our society want to equate Jesus with a fairy tale, with the Easter Bunny. Let me tell you, we can tell our kids all we want about the Easter Bunny, uh, but uh, the Easter Bunny's not real. Did I I just destroy some fantasies for somebody? Jesus Christ is real. He's the Son of the living God. He's our Savior and King. Amen? Amen. His coming was a fulfillment of prophecy. Second thing we need to observe that's revealed by uh, the triumphal entry is that He came as a King of peace. Luke records that the people shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. So it seems that the prophetic imagery of Jesus riding as a king upon a colt was not lost upon the crowd. But what kind of king was he? When a city was conquered in the ancient world, the type of animal the victorious king would ride as he entered the defeated town held a great deal of significance. If he was seated on a horse, the city was doomed. It was a sign that he had come as a king of war. But when he came on a donkey, the sign uh, was that he came as a king of peace. In all four Gospels, after his arrest, Jesus answered in the affirmative uh, when asked by the Roman governor if he was the king of the Jews. Pilate even had it inscribed on the board, uh, mounted on the top of the cross. But John's account adds further detail Uh, with Jesus telling Pilate that his, Jesus' kingdom, was not of this world. Indeed, the central component of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. While he was on this earth, Jesus never went to war, he never overthrew an earthly kingdom, and the only crown he ever wore was the crown of thorns that was pressed on his head. But he began to do then what he's continued to do for more than 2,000 years, and that is become the king of men's hearts. Yes, he came as a king, but he came as a king of peace. And as the gospel continues to be preached, and men and women and boys and girls in every country, uh, speaking every language on the earth and coming from all walks of life, continue to receive him, he is extending his kingdom of peace one heart at a time. He came as a king of peace. Scriptures say a lot about Jesus as the bringer of peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus himself said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In Philippians 4, 7, uh, Paul writes, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In John sixteen thirteen, 13, uh, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, hallelujah, I have overcome the world. And in Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I read that one already. Re- read it twice. Amen. The King of Peace. Church, I don't need to tell you this, but I'll say it anyway. This world is a mess. I mean it is a mess. And just when we in society, in our country, and countries around the world think, uh, you, you know, things are going to get better and uh, people will get along. And there won't be so much of a divide, let me tell you. It just seems to get worse. Can I tell you this? No politician, no earthly philosophy, no social program, no matter how well-intentioned, can bring true peace. It won't happen. And every time we think this politician, or this program, or this philosophy is going to bring us peace, we're disappointed time and time again. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the source of peace for humanity. And what type of peace does he bring? I want to submit to you this morning there are three types of peace that the Word of God talks about that every soul needs. First, there's peace with God. Someone said there is a God-shaped hole inside of every human being. There is a dissatisfaction that people try to fill with all sorts of earthly things, with wealth, with uh, possessions, uh, with earthly uh, physical pleasure, uh, with position, with uh, material wealth, all the things they want in world, and they can't fill it because that God-shaped hole is only filled with God. And man's soul is perpetually out of sorts until we find peace with God through Jesus Christ, amen? Second type of peace is peace with our fellow man. There will never be any peace between uh, human beings on this earth unless it's brought by the peace that Jesus Christ gives. He is the one that can bring us peace. The one thing I love about the church in, in general, the church universal and our church in particular is the love we have for one another. That we come from different backgrounds. We have Uh, you you know, we have different political philosophies. Did you know that? But yet we love each other and we have peace with each other. How? Because of Jesus Christ, the peace he gives. He gives peace with our fellow man. And thirdly, the third type of peace is peace within ourselves. We live in a world full of people with low self-esteem, people who hate themselves, people who've Uh, been led to believe and they bought the lie uh, that society has taught them that they're worthless. Their only uh, value is in what they can produce for someone else. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We have inherent worth because God created us. And the Lord wants to give us peace within ourselves. Peace that he created us to be the person that we are to be. And and you read the headlines, you know the way our society's going. This idea that that uh, you know I'm I'm not the gender that I, I I want to be, and I I don't feel right. Listen, God created male and female. God created us as He wanted us to be. And people who struggle in that area, they don't need to be physically mutilated. And they don't need to take chemicals that will alter the God-given chemicals that uh, are in their body and that their gender should have. They need counseling, they need prayer, and they need the peace of Jesus Christ to be at peace with who he made them to be. I know that's not popular in our culture, but I declare that as the word of God today. Jesus came as a king of peace. And we need to remember that. So it's the third thing that the triumphal entry reveals to us. It's that he deserves an outpouring of praise. He deserves an outpouring of praise. The scriptures tell us they praised him for two reasons. First of all, be, they praised him because of what he does, what he has done. Verse 37 says they praised him for all the miracles they had seen. What type of miracles had they seen? Uh, lepers healed? Sight restored to the blind? The deaf healed, even the dead being raised. (laughs) How many know that's good stuff? Turn to somebody and say, that's good stuff. And the people had seen this. They hadn't seen this with anyone else. And so they praised him. Was there a little self-interest at work? Sure. We we all have a little self-interest at work in our lives, don't we? But they knew that he was the healer. He was the deliverer. He was the resurrector. Hallelujah. And so he deserved praise. Anybody here ever been healed? Anybody ever been touched by the... That deserves some praise, doesn't it? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, you're our healer. Thank you, Jesus, you're a miracle worker. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you've ever been touched by the hand of Jesus, you should never ever stop praising him for it. Pastor Tim, that happened 30 years ago. Yeah. And it deserves at least another 30 years worth of praise. Because of what he's done. Jesus has done so much for me, I can't even begin to tell you. I keep you here till, till Easter Sunday, i telling you. I'm just getting started. You feel the same way? He's so good. He's so good. He deserves praise for what he's done. And what he continues to do. Secondly, they praise him for who he is. Sometimes it's great to praise him for what he's done. Sometimes we just need to praise him for who he is. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was, but they understood enough to realize that he deserved their praise. He deserved their praise. I, listen, I believe if you're a Christian, if you name the name of Jesus, you should be a praiser. You should be someone... Listen, if, if your idea of praise is when we come to church once a week on a Sunday morning and sing a fast song or two and you say, well, I praise the Lord this week. Done till next Sunday. Then, then you have a very warped and small idea of what praise is all about. The Bible talks about praise being the fruit of our lips, continually giving thanks. We should live a lifestyle of praise. He's worthy of praise every moment of every day, amen? Amen. The Word of God tells uh, us all that Jesus did while He walked on the earth and All those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus can tell you all that he's done for them. But the word of God also tells us who he is. Here are just a few of the things our Lord is to us. The scriptures, and this is just a small list, the scriptures declare that he is Emmanuel, God with us. We're not alone. Praise God that he's with us, amen? That he's our Lord. He's our master. The scripture tells us he's our savior. There's enough to praise him for all eternity, right there. He's our savior. He saved, by definition, someone who needs saving can't save themselves, hallelujah. We praise him because he's our savior, he's our comforter. He's the one who comes alongside us. He's our healer, hallelujah, this morning. He is our burden bearer. Jesus said cast your care on, uh, the Bible says cast your care on him because he cares for you. Jesus said come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's our burden bearer this morning, he's our friend. Jesus said, I have not called you servants in John 10. He said, I've called you uh, my friends. Hallelujah. Can you imagine we are friends with the creator of the universe this morning? Praise the Lord. And he is the ultimate conqueror. He is the soon coming king. Hallelujah. He deserves our praise. He deserves an outpouring of praise, a crescendo of praise. You football fans, if you ever see a... Uh, a, a play where a running back, uh, the, the ball is deep in the, the offensive team's territory and the running back breaks three, breaks through the line, and he begins to head out into the clear on that long run to the end zone. You can hear, if it's a home game, <laughs> if, if, if it's a home game, you hear the roar of the crowd. You know what I'm talking about? And you just hear it swell. If, you, if you're a Commanders fan, you haven't heard that lately, but other teams, you know, um, and and, and and it's just, and, and sometimes I'll just do a replay, just, I love that sound, because it, it starts out as a, as, a, as a gentle, and then it just swell, a crescendo of excitement. Uh, I, I also think back, one one of the uh, great, I think, sports moments in history was on September 6, 1995, when Cal Ripken broke the consecutive game streak of Lou Gehrig. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but. Uh, Lou Gehrig had played in 2,130 consecutive games on, on that night. Cal Ripken broke that streak, and in the middle of the game, when it became an official game, he had broken the record. The game stopped, and the crowd went nuts, and the banners were out. The game stopped for like 22 minutes, and his teammates pushed him out of the dugout while the fans were cheering. He did a lap. Around the stadium, while uh, Whitney Houston's "One Moment in Time" was playing, and it was just—and every once in a while, I just need a little pick me up. I just—I I have a video of that I just look at. That it was just why? Because it was just unabashed joy. It was just a celebration. But how much greater should the crescendo of praise be for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Amen. We sang this morning. You deserve it all. Jesus deserves a crescendo, an outpouring of praise, because he's worthy. I hope and pray that this sanctuary is full next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. I would love to hear, wouldn't you? I just encourage folks, if you're watching, uh, we would just love to have you join us and, and Uh, Hopefully, folks will fill this place. I just want to hear a crescendo, an outpouring of praise. Why? Because he's worthy of our praise. That's what the triumphal entry reveals to us. Number four, what does it reveal to us? It reveals that for some, he's the cause of a predicament. Did you know that Jesus is the cause of a predicament for some people? We see here, it mentions the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an influential religious sect within Judaism in the time of Christ in the early church. They were known for their emphasis on personal piety. The word Pharisee actually comes from a word meaning separated. Their acceptance of the oral tradition in addition to the written law and their teaching that all Jews should observe all 600 plus laws in the Torah uh, was, was their calling card. They were mostly middle-class businessmen and uh, leaders of the synagogues. They were a minority in the the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70-member Supreme Court of Israel. But they seemed to control a lot of decision-making because they were very popular with the people. They accepted the written word as inspired by God, but they piled on all these uh, oral traditions, all these additions to the law. Uh, And uh, so, in in effect, they added to God's word. And Jesus, in Mark 7, publicly condemned them, saying uh, their teachings are merely human rules. In other words, Jesus said, hey, we we have the scriptures to obey. We don't need a ton of man-made rules and traditions added on top of that to place a burden on people's backs. So that was what the Pharisees were all about. So what was their predicament? Well, they hated Jesus, and they couldn't stand the exuberant praise he received on the road to Jerusalem. They couldn't let that continue. They wanted to arrest him, and do away with him, but he was so popular among the crowd at that moment, they couldn't do that. So they they went to a plan B. They came to Jesus in all their religious uh, superiority, and they said, Master, this is unseemly. You need to rebuke the crowd. In other words, you need to stop them from doing this. And you know what Jesus said? He said, if these people stop praising, these very stones are going to cry out praise to me. In other words, the, the praise of Jesus was so right and so appropriate, even nature would recognize it and cry out praise to him. And so what did he do? He frustrated them once again. You see, Jesus creates a predicament, a problem for some people. I, I, I came across an article I want to share with you a few excerpts. It's, it's entitled The Problem with Jesus by a name, man named Carl Lafferton. I'll read you a few... Po- parts of it. He says, when it comes to outreach, we have a problem with Jesus, not a problem with who Jesus is, of course. Jesus is the answer to all our deepest questions and longings. He is the compassionate one, the broken search for, the forgiving one, the flawed need. He is the strong one, the weak can cry to, the challenging one, the self-righteous require. So what's the problem? It's with the simple word Jesus. Your image of Jesus is, speaking to Christians, I hope, informed by Scripture. He's the incarnate, crucified Christ, ruling Son of God, the original Jesus of history. But that's not the image most people have of Him. When you say Jesus, they have an identity for Him in their heads. It's just not the real one. This is a function of the times we're living in. We speak into an increasingly post-Christian society. That means that Jesus isn't foreign, he's domesticated. He's a somebody, not a nobody, and you can take your pick about which somebody he is. There's a whole smorgasbord of cultural Christs, and you just select the Jesus who best fits your mindset and lifestyle and run with him. If you ever need to trade him in for a different version, that's fine. So you want a good teacher whose advice you can accept or ignore? Welcome good teacher Jesus. You're after a freedom fighter with a blank placard onto which you can write your own slogan, violent revolution or lower taxes or more defense spending or no war, you'll love freedom fighter Jesus. You like to reject Jesus as out of date and bigoted and get on with living how you like? You need intolerant judge Jesus. The one Jesus, he says, our culture doesn't offer and can't stomach is original Jesus. The one who can't be changed but the one who calls us to change instead. As soon as you say Jesus, people hear intolerant judge, children's story, distant God, and so on. And then they hear whatever you say next, your explanation of the wonder of the cross, or the joy of the empty tomb, or the reality of judgment, within that false category they have of Jesus. Therefore the gospel makes little sense and does not sound attractive, even though it's the only thing that makes total sense and is infinitely wonderful. In a conversation where two people talk about Jesus, they are, in fact, often talking about two different people. The problem with Jesus. He goes on to describe how to overcome that. uh, And he closes by saying, it's our privilege to be able to say to someone, let me tell you about my Jesus. He's more compassionate, more controversial, more compelling than you ever imagined. And he's real. Wouldn't you love to know him? Jesus still causes a predicament for people today who don't know the real Jesus, who the real Jesus is, or know who he is but are unwilling to accept him. We need to present the true Jesus, the original, the loving, compassionate, righteous, true, holy, Jesus. But make no mistake about it. For some people, Jesus will always cause a predicament. There will always be people who have a problem with Jesus. And it's hard for us sometimes because we know what he's done for us. We know how wonderful Jesus is. You talk to people about Jesus and they just say, I want no part of it. And that's our task. That's our job. But there will always be people for whom Jesus causes a predicament. What's the fifth thing that is revealed in the triumphal entry? It's that his grief reveals his heart of passion. The grief Jesus expresses here at the end of this passage is profound. The Greek word that is translated wept in our Bible signifies more than tears. It suggests a soul racking gut-wrenching sobbing that a person does at the funeral of a friend. As a matter of fact, the only other time the scriptures record that Jesus wept was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. But why was he weeping on this joyous day? He was weeping over the holy city of Jerusalem, which would eventually reject him, the Savior, and be destroyed by the Romans. Everything Jesus prophesied here in verses 41 through 44 uh, came true in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus came and leveled the city, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered almost all of its inhabitants. And so here, uh, as Jesus has an overview of the city, he weeps for the city uh, because he has a passion for lost people. As a matter of fact, in uh, Luke 19, verse 10, earlier in this chapter, Jesus stated that the very reason he came to earth was to seek and to save the lost. And so his grief here on this occasion reveals his heart of passion for lost people. That was Jesus' greatest passion for lost people. It needs to be our passion as well. The great evangelist D.L. Moody told the story of his conversion this way. He said, when I was a boy in Boston, I used to attend a Sunday school class, and one day I recollect that my teacher... Uh, came around behind the counter of the shop I was working in and he put his hand on my shoulder and he talked to me about Christ in my soul. He said, I had not felt a a need for that up until then. And I I want you to listen to this. This young man D.L. Moody said this. He said, "Uh, I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here is a man who never saw me till recently He is weeping over my sins and I've never shed a tear over them. But I understand it now, he's saying years later, and I know what it is to have a passion for men's souls and weep over their sins. I don't remember what he said, this man, but I can still feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder. Moody went on to win over one million souls to Jesus Christ through his campaign. But what never left him was the passion of that man for his lost soul when Moody himself hadn't even given a thought to it. Passion. I wanna ask you this morning, I know we're going a little over time, but I appreciate you staying with me. I wanna ask you this morning, what moves you What melts your heart? Jesus was and is moved by the plight of lost people. And we are often focused on everything but the souls of lost people he has called us to win. I say this humbly and respectfully this morning. If, as a Christian, it's been a long time since you felt a soul-stirring passion to win lost people to Jesus, then this morning I respectfully suggest that you pray and ask God to replace your cold heart with a heart for the lost. Jesus' passion for the lost was so great that he poured, it, it came pouring out in grief over the plight of lost souls. God, give us the heart of Jesus for lost souls that are bound for an eternity without God. In conclusion, this morning, what does Christ's triumphal infantry reveal to us? That, That his arrival was a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was who he claimed to be. The Son of God sent from the Father to redeem the world. And therefore, as I said, we need to take seriously everything. He said, we can't pick and choose, can we? We need to take to heart everything he said. He came, secondly, as a king of peace. True peace is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it tells us that he deserves an outpouring of our praise. Not a little bit, not just on schedule. You know, when you're full of love for somebody and passion, but you you don't just, you know, put on your, your calendar on your smartphone, okay, tomorrow at three o'clock, I will praise my wife and tell her how wonderful she is. Lasts from 3 o'clock to 3.01. You don't do that, although for some, you know, maybe that's a start, but. No, it's spontaneous. It just pours out. He deserves an outpouring of praise. Uh, Fourthly, we recognize that for some, he's the cause of a predicament. Some people don't know what to do with Jesus. We need to share with them the original Jesus who Jesus truly is. And fifthly, that his grief reveals his heart of passion for lost people. And he wants us to have that passion.